Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 6, verse, chapter six verses 1 through 5. So, pretty soon after Amy and I were married, uh, we, we went on a, an anniversary getaway to the city of New Orleans. Uh, and we, uh, we were married the year after Katrina. Uh, and of course, New Orleans as a city took a little while to come back from, uh, from Katrina. And what we found was, as a young married couple, uh, that we could go and stay in a fairly nice hotel in New Orleans for, uh, you know, fairly inexpensively because they were really needing people to come back. They needed the tourism dollars. So we, uh, we uh, you know, we booked this hotel room. We went down there, and as we were driving up uh, to this hotel, uh, I noticed that there were, there were bellhops and valets right outside. And as I was driving up, my hands got a little bit tighter around the steering wheel because when I saw the bellhops and they saw me, they came rushing toward the car. And I realized in that moment, I said, I said to myself, oh no, they're going to want to carry my bags. And you think, well, that's not a big deal. Well, every red-blooded American male knows that you don't let anyone else carry your bags, especially a bellhop at a hotel who's going to want to tip. And maybe that was the bigger issue that I knew that I was going to have to give this guy a tip for doing a job that I knew that I could do. Well, he did. He grabbed the, the bags and all of those things. They took it up to the room. Then when we were leaving uh, the hotel, same sort of thing. But I had this idea. I said, I know I can go down. I can sneak down there and get one of those little baggage carts, but without them knowing. So I did. And I, I went on my mission and I got down to the hotel and I went in, and there was no one around, and I went in where they kept those things, and I grabbed one. And then there was someone behind me, a large man came behind me and put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, I can't let you do that. And I turned around, and I looked up at him. It was the largest bellhop I'd ever seen. And he said, if you take one of those, my boss is going to be very angry with me. You can't carry your own bags. And I said, yes, sir, you can come with me. I'll give you my bags to carry. Well, it's just a reminder to us, uh, I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone, that you want to carry your own bags. You don't like it when someone else steps in to help. But as we're going to see in this passage, Paul says that, that it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually something that Christians need. We need help. And it's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Now, I just want to encourage you. If it were easy to do, Paul would not have to give us this command. But it is a hard thing for us to do. It's a hard thing to ask for help. It's a hard thing to accept help. If we're easy, we wouldn't have any problems doing it. But we do. And so Paul has to say, this is how you should act. So let's read this together. I want to read... Uh, verses 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 6. And remember, this is God's good and kind and gracious word to you this morning. He says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone 
and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in in understanding this passage. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word. And I pray that even though it's a difficult thing for us to do, I pray that you would, by the Spirit, give us direction, uh, that you would help us in this endeavor to uh, bear one another's burdens and therefore to fulfill the law of Christ. I pray these things in his name. Amen. So this morning I want to look at this passage in three ways, and it's essentially the three, uh, three verbs, the three commands that you see in this passage. So the first one is that we are to restore sinners. That's the first verb, the first command. It's a very easy thing for us to see here, but it gets into something that's very complicated. Easy command, complicated topic, hard topic to talk about. What is the topic? It's the nasty business of church discipline. So Paul is going in and saying, this is what you should do in the church. If anyone is caught in a sin, what should you do? You should restore him. If you're caught in in a sin, you should restore that person. And he's talking about church discipline. Traditionally, there are three different marks of the church. The three marks of any true church of Christ are, in order, the faithful preaching of the word of God, Secondly, the right administration of the sacraments. And thirdly, church discipline. So if you go back thousands of years, the church has always been marked by those those three things. The true church, preaching of the word, right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. Now there are many churches that are great with the preaching of the word. And they faithfully administer the sacraments. But when it comes time to, to... doing church discipline, well, they don't like doing it. Why? Because it's messy and it's nasty. And you have to involve yourself in other people's lives. And many churches are afraid of doing that because if you start meddling in the lives of individuals, well, what's going to happen? Well, they're going to leave. And if they leave, what's going to happen? They're not going to tithe. And if they don't tithe, what's going to happen? You're not going to have enough money to do the things that you want to do. And so what happens is churches end up becoming people pleasers. And the hard truth is, is that if you are going that route, if you lose church discipline as a church, then what happens is the right administration of the sacraments, that falls away. And then very quickly after that, the preaching of the word falls away as well. You need all three of those things. They're all three kind of the legs of the table. They hold it up. If you miss one, the whole thing topples over. So what Paul does here is in talking about church discipline, he tells you how it needs to be carried out. And it's not the way of the world. The, way, the world believes in discipline as well, but the world's way is either overbearing. Uh, it's, it's a way of guilting people. It was funny, I read an article yesterday about Tony Robbins. He's a, a well-known public speaker, well-known uh, kind of self-help guru, and millions of people over the years have gone and, and to him and, and asked him for help. And one of the things that I read that he did um, was in his seminars, in his conferences, which are very expensive to attend, he gives you tasks to complete while you're there over a weekend or over, over a few days. And for those people that fail the task the, the worst, he has you come up and drink a brown liquid that tastes terrible. 
And it's a way to remind you, and what he says is this brown liquid, whatever it is, the effects of it stay with you for days to remind you how big a failure you are. Okay? So this self-help guru, his means of helping you is to make you feel terrible about yourself. That's one of the ways that the world carries out discipline. And then the other way to do it is to be untruthful about, the, about your nature and essentially say that you're not that bad and things aren't that bad and you're not that big of a screw-up. But Christ's way isn't either of those. It's not overbearing or untruthful. Here's what Paul says. If, if you're caught in a sin, then the church should restore you spiritually or by those that are spiritual. More about that in a second. And then it needs to be done in gentleness. Okay? So, here's Christ's way of carrying out church discipline. It's done by those that are spiritual. What does that mean? Well, we just saw at the end of chapter 5 that Christ's people are to walk by the Spirit. They're to have the fruit of the Spirit. Spiritual people are the ones that have these fruit working out of their lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So those of you that are spiritual, that are led by the Spirit, that are that exhibit these qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, should be restoring those that are caught in public sin. And let me just say this. This is public sin. This is not the sort of thing where churches are going after people, trying to find sin in their lives, but it's obvious public sin that's being addressed here. So if anyone is caught in a transgression... And it needs to be done in a spirit of gentleness. Those who are spiritual, that exhibit all those spirit-led qualities, and then in especially the spirit and gentleness, meaning carefully. It's done in a way that handles people delicately, that doesn't just beat them over the head. In other words, church discipline is not the hammer of the church where we just drive home the point that you are a guilty sinner deserving of the wrath of God. Now, those things are true, but that's not what church discipline is supposed to be about. In other words, use the spiritual tools for the job, not a hammer. Not, let me say it like this, not just a hammer, but a crowbar. What does a crowbar do? A crowbar lifts, right? It pulls up. And so sin drives us down, and, and what a crowbar does is it lifts us up from the sin. But then also, maybe uh, pliers. When I worked uh, for a general contractor, one of the things that I had to do, because um, I didn't know, couldn't do hardly anything else, was I had to pull uh, nails through wood, right? In order to not split the wood, instead of prying it up, I had to pull it through the wood with a set of pliers. Uh, and sometimes church discipline is like that, where you're pulling people through their sin, you're bringing them through to the other side of it. Um, sometimes it's a reciprocating saw. Okay? If there was a really tough hammer or nail that you couldn't get out, sometimes you would have to get a reciprocating saw and just cut the thing off. And yes, church discipline does include something like excommunication, where if you are unrepentant in your sin, eventually you can be cut off from the rest of the church. But all of that is done in a as gentle way as possible and led by the Spirit. What's the goal of this? What's the goal of church discipline? Notice, he says the goal of church discipline is restoration. And restoration means to make complete. That's the word that's used, that he uses, that is translated into restoration or to restore, to make complete. In other words, one who is in public sin 
is breaking off from the church and the rest of the church is suffering. And so what church discipline attempts to do is to bring the church back together, to join it back together. Not to make us feel superior, not to make those of us not caught in that sin feel better about ourselves or to feel, make others feel guilty about it, but to show the glory of Christ. That is the goal of church discipline. And that's something that we need to be doing. Okay. So that's the first thing we see is that the church needs to be restoring sinners. And then secondly, related to it, he says that the church needs to bear each other's burdens. Look there at verse two, verses 2 and 3. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is a one-anothering passage. Paul and the apostles and Jesus are always talking about one-anothering each other. It's the most common command to one another, to love one another, to care for one another, and here to bear one another's burdens. And what he's saying there is your actions and your attitudes towards other believers actually reveals a lot about who you are and a lot about your heart. If you don't one another each other, if you don't care for one another, love each other, bear one another's burdens, can you really call yourself a Christian? That's essentially what he gets down to here. And in the context of this passage, what's he talking about? He's talking about sin. He doesn't just go from restoring a sinner and then into something completely different. He's in context saying, bear one another's burdens. What is our burden? The burden that we carry, it's all of the hard stuff of life, the trials of life, yes, but a lot of times it's the sin that we're dealing with as well. So you and I are to help each other carry the weight of sin that we have. It's to carry the weight of the sins of others. And the Christian life is marked by doing these things, helping each other carry the weight of our sin. So how can you help bear the sins of others? Well, I want to use a Lord of the Rings illustration here, if I may. Uh, at the very end of the series, at the very end of the books, Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, Samwise, who, by the way, is the real hero of the story, Samwise, they're both hobbits. They're both heading to Mordor to destroy the ring. The ring is a picture of sin. And it is weighing Frodo down as he's carrying it to throw it into the, the fires of Mordor. Uh, and as they get closer and closer to destroying the sin, the, the ring gets heavier and heavier. And at one point, Sam, he says, Frodo, let me carry the ring. Let me carry it just for a little way. And Frodo realizes, he says, no, this weight is my weight. I can't let you carry it. And so they go on a little bit longer, and eventually Frodo buckles under the weight of the ring. He can't carry it. And Sam says in a very, uh, uh, in the movie at least, it's a movie moving moment where he says, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you. And he picks up Frodo, and he carries him the rest of the way into the very heart of the mountain of Mordor. So, how does this relate to you? Well, we all have our own sin, and we are carrying our own sin. And you know, I can't give you my sin to carry, but you know what? I will need you at times to pick me up and carry me through those hard times. 
What did it take for Sam to do that? Why could Sam pick up Frodo, or how could he do it? He did it because, and this is just very basic stuff, Sam was with Frodo the entire time for the entire journey. He was right there next to him, and he saw the weight of the ring on his friend Frodo. And so when Frodo couldn't go any longer, he was right there and he could pick him up. Very basic stuff. In order to bear one another's burdens, you have to be with other Christians and you have to be in fellowship with them and you have to see them. But it also requires something else. It requires from every one of us vulnerability. Willingness to say, I have these sins in my life and I need your help in overcoming them. And then whenever you hear someone being vulnerable in that way, you need to be humble. And in verse 3, he deals with this. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And what he's talking about there is saying, if you think you're too good to carry someone's burdens because you have overcome that sin, you're deceiving yourself. In fact, you are really nothing. You need to be humble about who you are in Christ. You are just like your, your friend. You are a dead sinner. And you can't do anything for yourself apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we see those things. And then finally what he says there in verses 4 and 5, the final verb. He says, test yourself. Test yourself. First verb was restore. Second one was bear. Third one is test yourself. What he's asking is, test yourself, test your work, test your ability, test who you are, and see just how valuable you really are. In other words, put your own work through a vetting process. How does your work stand up? Well, if you are comparing your work, and let's say it like this, if you're comparing your goodness to someone else's, you might find that, yes, you are okay, that you are doing pretty good. But Paul doesn't want you to compare yourself to other people. He says, test yourself, test your work, test how you're doing spiritually compared to God's standard. Um, I, in, in school, I remember this vividly. I loved it when teachers would do this. We would take a quiz, and then the teacher would say, okay, now switch with another student and let them grade your paper." I love doing it. And I would look over to my buddy and say, hey, take it, right? Make sure that my work is actually okay. And then it was even better when she said, test your own paper. Like, all right, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make sure that every answer that I give is the right answer, right? Well, that's cheating. That's lying. That's not good. And that's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, look at how good you're doing. How are you really doing? According to God's standard, how are you measuring up? There, uh, there's a series, there's a bunch of different TV shows that are out there now. Reality TV shows, the most popular form of television shows now, reality TV by far. Everybody's watching these things. But there's one in particular that I really love, and it's, it's, it's a genre of reality TV. And it's not for people that excel at things, it's for people that are absolutely terrible at them. And there's one called Canada's Worst Handyman. You can find it on Netflix. It is wonderful. And what they do is they take individuals that are really confident in their ability to fix stuff. 
They fix things around their house all the time. The problem is that their spouse has turned them into this television show and said, yeah, put them on TV to let them show how good they are at fixing things. And so they, they're given projects to do in a house over a weekend, and they have to fix them. And it's hilarious because these guys, typically guys, have no clue what they're doing. And at the end, it's way worse than it was at the beginning. And Paul essentially is saying in this, and I think this is kind of a joke that he's saying, you're going to find out that this is what you're like. If you test your work, you're going to be like Canada's worst handyman. At the end of the weekend, you're going to find that your work is not very good if you really compare it to God's standard. So what does all that mean? It means, he says here, if you find that your work is actually good, then you will have reason to boast in yourself. But what you're going to find out is that it's not, and you're going to have no reason to boast. You're going to be humble about your work. If you find this out, you're not going to think too highly of yourself, so what's going to happen? You're going to be willing to go help other people. You're not going to be so focused on yourself. You're not going to be so focused on your goodness that you're going to realize that that you are acceptable by God or from God because of his grace, not because of your work. And you are going to go and help other people. Probably what he means here when he says, but let's each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Probably what he means there is you're not going to boast over your neighbor because you're so much better than him. Another place Paul says, think of yourself as worse than everyone else, as more lowly than everyone else. And then in Philippians 2, he says, have the mind of Christ, that though he was in the very image of God, the nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. That is to be our attitude. There was a viral video that went out a couple of years ago, uh, and there was a man uh, that wanted to see what homeless people did whenever they received money. And so he went around and he actually gave $100 bills to homeless people. And then they had a camera crew follow around this home, these homeless people. And I think it was like five or six different people that they gave $100 bills to. And it was amazing to watch because what that homeless person, what they all did was they took the $100 and they didn't go buy alcohol for themselves. They didn't just go and hoard it and buy things for themselves. They actually went and gathered other homeless people and brought them to a place to buy food for everyone else. If you understand who you are, that you are a poor beggar before God, and you understand that there are other poor beggars around you that need food, you're going to go when you receive grace, and you're going to give grace to others. And then finally, he ends in verse 5 where he says, For each one will have to bear his own load. And he says, look, the reality is you're going to have to give an account for who you are and what you do. You will have to give an account for your load. And if you think you're doing a good job of carrying your load, you've deceived yourself. And you're really arrogant. You might be good in one area, but you're probably failing in many other ones. And the reality is we should only be boasting in Jesus Christ. And he is our good news. So those are the three things that Christians need to be doing, at least for this week we see this. Restore sinners. We need to be bearing one another's burdens, and we need to be testing our own work. Now, in all of this, I want to take us back to, take us back to the bellhop that carried, carried the bags. Now, he was getting a tip, and he told me 
He said, my boss will be very unhappy with me if I let you carry your own bags. And he told me that because he was trying to earn his living. He was trying to earn his keep. And I understand that, and that's all well and good. But the Christian's motivation is not that we are trying to earn our keep. The reality is, is that our bags have already been carried by Jesus Christ. That when he went to the cross, he took all of our baggage, all of the weight of our sin, all of our shame and all of our guilt, and it was nailed to the cross with him. He carried it, he carried it for us. And that's the basis of our service, that in light of Christ and what he's done for us, we can carry each other's burdens because our bags have already been carried. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. Lord, I pray that we would one another each other, that we would go after each other, that we would seek the fellowship of other Christians, and that we would carry each other's burdens because our burdens have been carried by Jesus Christ. Pray that you would help us to test our own work and to see where we are lacking so that we will be humble people and not arrogant. And I pray that Jesus Christ would be at the fore of everything that we do, that we would see him going before us, carrying the load of our sin, making our load so very light. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand now and sing our closing hymn, The Church's One Foundation. It's 347. The Church's One Foundation, 347. Um, we're going to sing stanzas one, two, five, and six.